chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, what a fitting song to lead into our study of the prophet Jonah, who found perfect rest in the most unusual of places. That being, first of all, in the belly of a great fish, that being, second of all, under a gourd that then died, that he then complained about. In both of those places, I think he learned the perfect peace of his Lord, whose way was right and whose will was perfect. And we see the expression of that tonight in Jonah chapter 2 and his prayer from the belly of the great fish. In light of our focus this morning on the resurrection of Jesus, I thought it would be appropriate to come back tonight and consider the prayer of Jonah, who is one of the clearest types of our Messiah, in particular when he's in the belly of the fish and then spit out three days later. Um, And it's an astounding thought to think that he, A, tells his story, obviously inspired by the Spirit, and then B, uh, is quite honest with his story, and C, in the midst of all of the chaos, he prays. Uh, and that that prayer is recorded for us. I'm sure he prayed a lot of things in that process. But it's this prayer from Jonah that makes it into Scripture. And that's really the logic of our little mini-series that we're doing here on Sunday evenings. Prayer God wants to hear. The, the logic is if God put it in Scripture, he probably has something he wants to, us to learn about how we should pray. Because certainly we can all pray more effectively uh, we can all pray in ways that are, are more pleasing to our Lord. Uh, he loves to hear from us, and he does listen, and he does answer. Uh, it's not I don't mean to in any way say that the quality of our prayer affects his hearing or not. I just mean to say he's made it clear how we should pray. He's taught us how to pray. He's given us principles, as we read in Matthew 6, but he's also given us examples. And so that's our, our logic in the series, to consider examples of prayers that have been set in stone in Scripture. The inherent danger of of this process of looking at these prayers and trying to learn from them, uh, and I fear this for me first, all right? So this is not about you, this is about me. My fear for me is that I would gain more knowledge about how to pray, that I would fill my head with more principles about uh, the practice of prayer, but that my practice would not indeed change. uh, And um, my head being full, my heart would then be empty, uh, and my, my daily routine would be unaffected. And that's so easy to do. And that is the inherent danger in all teaching, of course, as James taught us to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers as well. Uh, and in this most practical consideration of the Christian life, we desperately need God to help us, not just hear it, but to have it so impact us that we now uh, change how we pray and how we approach our Lord. So that's our our desire as we come to Scripture tonight, and especially this prayer, which is recorded from, I think, the most unusual place any prayer has been offered from in the Scriptures. I was trying to think, where else were weird places that prayers are offered? You know, obviously the jail cell in Philippi and uh, a few other weird places, but there is none as strange as this. The, The belly of a fish, hundreds of yards underwater at least, uh, if not miles underwater, uh, unsure if he was going to live or die. You think about Jonah and Jesus, just a, a few correlations I think are helpful uh, that kind of set the scene for coming into Jonah chapter 2. 
there's a lot of foreshadowing happening here between Jonah and Jesus. Jonah obviously was buried in the belly of the great fish for three nights and three days, which forms one of the clearest types of our Lord's descension into his own grave, as we talked about this morning. Uh, Jonah and Jesus were both put into that temporary place of death because of, uh, and, and by the way, Jonah being the, the watery uh, tomb of uh a fish's belly, and Jesus being in a real tomb, hewn in new stone. Both of them are there because of sinful rebellion. Jonah because of his own rebellion, and Jesus because of our rebellion. And that's what put them both in that grave. Jonah's descent into the depths of the ocean would most certainly have spelled his certain and sure death, especially for an Israelite. Uh, one of his... Um, Pedigree especially would not want to be near the water. They feared the water. The water represented death. Certainly did not know how to swim well, especially not in the ocean in the midst of a storm. So getting thrown overboard meant you are being given over to death. He should have never returned from those watery depths. And certainly the sailors who threw him over never expected this man to see the light of day again. He was given entirely the sure and certain death from uh, that we move to Jesus. It's the same way with our Lord. He too was given to death and the expectation was that he would never see the light of day as a resurrected uh, human again. That he was beholden to the grave, given over to it and dead for good. That's the, the uh, posture, the mentality of even the disciples and the women as they approach his tomb on that Sunday morning. But shockingly in both cases, as I know you know, reminding you, after three days and three nights, indeed, our, our Lord and Jonah himself came out of the depths of their tombs alive. Jonah by miraculous intervention and Jesus by miraculous resurrection. And they both model uh, the hope we have in our own glorious resurrection someday. That miraculous intervention by our Lord, as you know, was a great fish appointed by God. You see at the end of chapter one, to swallow Jonah. So this is clear uh, obvious direction by the Lord to swallow up Jonah and to put him in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. Somewhere along the way, we don't really uh, get told how it happened. We just get told that it happened. Somewhere along the way, Jonah comes to his spiritual senses. He, he gets his spiritual bearings somewhere along the way and realizes what's going on and then prays this prayer in chapter two. It's a, a clear uh, expression when Jonah prays that he is still in the belly of the fish. It's clear by how Jonah tells the story that he has no idea what's going to happen. He doesn't know if he's going to die in the belly of the fish and become his latest lunch, if he's going to get spewed up back into the water and drowned like he was supposed to originally, or if in some miraculous way God's going to save him. You know the rest of the story, so you think, you read this, Jonah knows he's going to get rescued. He does not. There's no indication in chapter 2, that he knows how this is going to end. God has not told him. He is just in the belly of the fish. He's been given another breath, and with that breath, he determines to pray this prayer to the Lord. And before we get to the prayer, I think it's interesting, um, mostly interesting, maybe somewhat helpful, to know that it's physiologically possible to survive in the belly of the biggest fish we would know of would be a great whale. Uh, a sperm whale, to, to survive in the belly of that whale. It's actually happened historically. There's two known accounts, probably more that have happened, where someone has been swallowed for a time by a whale and has survived. 
But there's been physiological studies uh, based on the stomach of a whale, and could they uh, actually uh, present a feasible situation for someone swallowed by this whale? Well, indeed, it is possible. In, in fact, Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, I didn't look today if it still is that way online, but back in the day, uh, they actually had an article that proved this to be possible. It said that there would be air in the belly of the whale, which is part of how the, the whale keeps itself afloat. Not pleasant air, but air that you could breathe and stay alive with. Uh, and it would be uh, something that you could live through temperature-wise. It'd be hot. They uh, assume between 104 and 108. So it would not be pleasant, but you could survive it. Uh, the, the acid from the, the uh, whale's stomach that's processing its food would not destroy or kill Jonah because he's a living organism. It would, it would scar and, and put sores on his flesh, on his skin, but it wouldn't kill him uh, as what they came up with as they did their scientific studies. Um, and so not only is it possible, but as I said, there's accounts in history of men surviving through fishing tales, and they weren't just fish tales, but they were actually accounts written down for historical record of men surviving in the belly of a whale. Now, we didn't need to know that to know that it happened because we know from Jonah's account it happened, and we believe it. And if it's God's miraculous intervention, it's God's miraculous intervention. We believe it. It's here. But we, it's good to know that indeed it is feasible and has happened to others. As you read through the book of Jonah, maybe you haven't done that recently, but I'm sure you're very familiar with the story as you read through, it's easy to get caught up in, in the external stuff and uh, the, the running away from the Lord and, and going the opposite direction and uh, on the ship and the big storm and the interaction with the sailors and the captain and that whole thing and then getting thrown overboard and getting swallowed by a great fish and uh, thrown up on land and then finally submitting and going and going back to Nineveh and the great repentance. But it's easy to get caught up in the external things. But the real point, I think, of the book is the internal wrestling between Jonah and God. Well, I should say Jonah with God. Jonah has been given clear word from the Lord that he doesn't like. He doesn't want to do. He doesn't think it's good. It doesn't think it's worth his time and effort. And so he turns and runs from the Lord only to have all things get worse. Only to have his situation get far, far worse than he could have imagined. And so he finds himself at the end of Jonah chapter 1, descending to the bottom of the ocean, no hope of survival. He describes in the prayer being captured in the seaweed, down to the sand on the bottom of the ocean floor, anticipating that that would be his grave, and the sand itself would become his cover for his dead body. That's how he describes it in Jonah 2. He's convinced he's going to die. And it is here that Jonah is finally broken as the great fish swallows Jonah and in the belly of that fish he sees an aspect to the mercy of God he has not previously seen. And in that moment he prays this prayer. Jonah 2 verse 1 Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Why do you think this prayer is included in Scripture at this moment? Why not the prayer of, of Jonah asking God to save him? You notice as I read that, that he doesn't ask anything of the Lord. He's telling his story in prayer as an expression of praise to the Lord. He still does not know how it's going to end. He still is in the depths as it were. Now he's alive, but barely. And in the depths, he offers this expression of, of praise and thanksgiving and contrition before the Lord. Why is this prayer here included in Scripture? I think it is in this moment we see an expression of, of brokenness, of contrition, of a spirit that's, that's finally given in to the sovereign will of a holy God, of a man who, who's finally given himself over to his Lord, who now finds his identity as a servant of the Lord to do whatever it is the Lord would have him to do. Remember in Psalm 51, speaking of another servant of the Lord who served so well and so faithfully, and then in a series of decisions in which he turned his heart from the Lord and, and to his present circumstance and got lazy and, and failed to keep watch over his own heart, David, and was drawn into by temptation into his own sinful expression, pursuing his own lusts of the flesh, and ruined his life in many ways. Remember in his expression of, of confession in Psalm 51 and rejoicing in the forgiveness and the steadfast love of the Lord, he ends that psalm by asking God to help him praise him. Give me lips to sing and, and give you thanks and praise. And he says, you don't want sacrifice. For the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David, in the merciful discipline of the Lord, saw an expression of the glory of God and the grace of God he had not before seen. He himself was broken of spirit and of heart, and he was fully committed to live that way for the rest of his days. This is what I think is happening with Jonah in Jonah 2. His will is finally broken before the Lord. Now the the warning stamp on this sermon is that it comes back to bite him in chapter 4. When he then goes and obeys, he's submitted to the will of the Lord. He goes and he preaches and does what God wants him to do. And there's the greatest revival in human history. The most pagan nation who did the worst kinds of horrific war crimes you can imagine to the peoples they conquered, which is why Jonah didn't want to go. These are the worst people on the planet. God, why do you want to show them your mercy? 
He goes, preaches God's mercy, tells them to repent. They repent. It's an amazing revival. And what does Jonah do? In his brokenness and contrition, he goes out and he pouts before the Lord. Like, why would you do this, God? This is why I don't want to do this. But I knew you would do that. You would show them mercy. So the warning stamp on, on Jonah 2 and on this sermon is always be on guard. You're always prone to this will-filled pride, this selfish expression of what you want, what you think is right, over what God wants and what God thinks is right. These are some of the sweetest and the hardest times for the believer when we are broken in our obstinacy before the Lord, when we're humbled by Him and before Him. And really, you have the option of humbling yourself before the Lord or being humbled by the Lord. That, that's the options on the table for the, the true believer, to humble yourself before the Lord and pursue more grace from Him, or in pride, go your own way and be humbled by the Lord. And we have a mix of that for all of us, right? In, in some ways and times, we're humble and we're seeking His help and we're committed to do it His way and we know His grace and His constant mercy. Other times, and maybe sometimes in very close proximity to the one I just mentioned, we kind of harden our upper lip and determine to go our own way and do our own thing and and God has to humble us in those moments. And when he does, he breaks us. And those are some of the sweetest times for our walk with the Lord. In fact, I would say some of the, the sweetest uh, experiences I've had of prayer with the Lord have been in these moments of, of brokenness before God. When I've realized that my will is the problem, that my heart is the issue, that my sin is what's keeping me from the blessing of God and the work of God in my life. And I humble myself before the Lord and, and plead with Him for forgiveness. Those are moments of sweet, sweet fellowship with the Lord. I think that's why this prayer is here. It's Jonah's expression of a broken and contrite heart that he prays to the Lord in this way. I don't want you to think as we get into studying the prayer that you have to be under the discipline of the Lord to be broken before the Lord. Now, it's often that, and, and we're all under the discipline of the Lord. I'm not after anybody tonight. This is all of us. We, we're His children. And if you're His children, you're, if you're His child, you're always being disciplined by your loving Heavenly Father. And it's always in love, and it's always merciful and kind, but it's, it's always effective. He has His way with it. But you don't have to be under His discipline severely as you are broken to be yourself broken. You can humble yourself and realize your own sinfulness and have a heart posture of contrition before God. This humble awareness, this joyful acceptance of brokenness is that God is God and I am not. His ways are best and mine are not. His will is perfect and mine is not. It's similar to a wild stallion being slowly broken over time. We're like that wild stallion wanting to for a time obey and then slough it off and go our own way. And God in mercy continues to, to break our wild will and submit us to himself. So if you have a broken spirit, how do you pray? I think this is an important question because a broken spirit is pleasing to the Lord. I think Jonah is an example of a broken spirit. I think the prayer in Jonah 2 is an example of the prayer of a broken spirit. 
So what can we learn about if I am broken before the Lord, how would I then pray? So then I'll know, am I broken or not? You see the progression and then the, the progression in and the, the regression back out of that? Do you see how to assess your own heart to see if I'm broken or not? If these marks mark your prayer life, then likely you are broken before the Lord. The first mark of broken prayer is that of honesty. That's in verses 2 through 7. The broken heart is starkly honest in prayer with the Lord. Jonah acknowledges his misery in the depths. He's from the belly of the fish. He admits openly and honestly that, that he is indeed in distress. He's not whitewashing. He's not bemoaning his circumstances like, oh, if, if things were just different. He's not assigning guilt to anywhere else. He's honest about what's going on here. He doesn't whitewash the situation and lessen his pain through that process. He doesn't try to, to explain away his misery and, and make it sound like it's all going to be okay and we just need to trust the Lord and pull up our spiritual bootstraps and we'll get through. No, he's honest about it. I was in the depths. It was as bad as could be. And in prayer, he returns to the Lord and humbly seeks after the Lord once again. Notice he's not just honest about the situation, about where he's at and how bad it is. He's also honest about how he got there and who it is that's in charge and putting him there. And this is not about uh, him bemoaning who put him there. It's, it's a, an expression of praise. And so he doesn't blame the sailors. He doesn't cast blame at the feet of the captain. He doesn't bemoan the storm or the wind or the waves that, that brought about his being thrown over the edge of the ship. He indeed instead says in verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. Jonah knew that he had rebelled against God and had fallen into this disciplinary action from God and this broken spirit is one that's honest about this. And then in honesty, praises God for it. Gets to the point where it realizes that that's actually the best thing for me. That God threw me into the depths. That God was in charge of knowing what I needed to break my will and return me to Him. This is the honesty of a broken Christian rejoicing in the harsh mercy of a loving Father. Then by faith, embracing that discipline and longing for God's ongoing work. The prayer of the broken is marked by honesty. The prayer of the broken is also marked by thankfulness. That's in verses 5 through 7. Jonah recounts how he literally sank to the ocean depths that seaweed was wrapped around his head. A very poetic and realistic picture of what he faced as he was nearly drowned. The waves of the sandbar that he landed on and the ocean floor were about to close around him forever. But God intervened and, and rescued him, he says. It was God who heard him from the pit and delivered him out of the pit. It was the Lord, Jonah says, who heard my pleas. And, and as they came once again into the holy temple of the Lord, he was graciously answered and he was saved, albeit in the belly of a fish. He was saved, given another breath. And so you could say in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now I remind you, he is still there when he prays this prayer. There's a prayer of thankfulness in the depths. There's nothing that has changed circumstantially but the heart of Jonah. He's been broken by his 
present affliction, and he is filled with thankfulness. Now, it's one thing to be thankful in the midst of all of our blessings, and we should be. There's much we all know and enjoy and ought give thanks to the Lord for. But it's a different kind of thankfulness, isn't it? When out of the depths, in the belly of the fish, as it were, we can say salvation belongs to the Lord. It's here that the Lord heard my cry. It's here that the Lord answered me. It's here that the Lord saved me. No, though nothing has changed, it's here that my God has loved me and cared for me and shown mercy to me. He is indeed not speaking, obviously, of physical rescue. He's speaking of the spiritual rescue of his own soul, that the Lord captured him in the depths of his rebellion and through his disciplinary work had turned him back. And Jonah's not bitter or angry or frustrated about that. He's not blaming God for not intervening sooner that he didn't end up at the bottom of the ocean floor and now in a, a, a belly of a fish. He didn't blame God for saying, why didn't you stop me when I left Joppa? What's wrong with you, Lord? He doesn't start there. He starts with how good and gracious and kind the Lord is. He's filled with thanksgiving. I think this is the sure sign of a, a broken spirit before the Lord. When our prayers are filled with the, the genuine mark of an overflow and an abundance of thankfulness out of our heart. That God who has caused us great pain in His disciplinary work has also produced in us great thankfulness. That He is at work to save us even in the depths. And the last mark of broken prayer is that of commitment. So you're honest. If you're broken, you're honest. You're honest with the Lord, you're honest with yourself, you're honest with others. If you're broken, you're thankful. You're thankful to the Lord, you're thankful about the Lord to others. You're thankful, and your prayer is marked by those things, and you're also marked by commitment. This is Jonah's prayer of ongoing commitment to the Lord. In verse 8, he describes this, this contrition that his commitment is built on. So, this commitment flows out of the, the wellspring of his brokenness. It's because he's broken, it's because he's contrite, it's because he's laid low before the Lord that he is now committed to do what the Lord has called him to do. And so in verse 8, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Who's he talking about there? Jonah, Right? He knows this firsthand. He turned from the steadfast love of the Lord. He refused to stay in the will of Yahweh and the presence of Yahweh and knowingly turned from God and went literally the other direction and bowed himself to the idols of his own will and the idols of his own, his own conjuring up of how this could go better. I know better than God. He worshiped the idol of his own intellect, his own reason, his own affection, what he wanted, what he loved. And he pursued that. And he bowed down to that idol and he says, listen, it got me into a mess. I forsook the one who loves me forever. Worshiping the idol of self-autonomy, he found himself in the depths of his misery. 
and there he prays. I think what Jonah experiences in Jonah 2, though not exactly uh, in the same details, of course, every Christian who's a true child of the Lord has the same experience. We all come to the end of ourselves at some point in our sinfulness. We all find ourselves worshiping down to bowing down and worshiping some idol who leads us away from the Lord of steadfast love. And, and we see ourselves in the depths and we wake up one day with seaweed around our head buried in the sand on the ocean floor about to die. And God mercifully sends a great fish to swallow us and we in the belly try to figure this thing out. What in the world am I doing? And it's here that we're in our brokenness and in our contrition, repenting of our idolatry. We're contrite before the Lord. This is very similar, by the way. Just turn with me real quick to 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. This is a, Jonah would have known this idea, this thought, maybe even this text really well. 1 Kings 8 is a prophet of God to his people. He would have known this promise from earlier times, from the times of the Davidic and Solomonic dynasty. Solomon, as he dedicates the temple and prays this prayer of dedication, in verse 33, this place which is the, the visible expression of the presence of God, which is the blessing of God's people, right? That they are, they are if, if God's presence leaves, they are cursed. So this is the, the visible expression of the blessing of God in the midst of the people of God. Verse 33, Solomon prays, when your people Israel are defeated, before the enemy, because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. He goes on with several other similar circumstances and teaches the people of Israel to, in their affliction, to seek the Lord. Well, you're not going to seek the Lord if you're not convinced that that affliction is sent by God to get your attention, to show you your sinfulness, to break your heart over your current condition and to return to the Lord. And so Solomon laid the pattern that I think here Jonah is following. Other prophets, namely Daniel, follows the same. When in the land of Babylon, he pleads with God to remember his people, remember his promises, and restore them to his land. And God hears the prayer of Daniel, and I think here, obviously, hears the prayer of Jonah, and grants to them mercy, because he is a God of steadfast love. And Beloved, this is the kind of prayer he loves to hear. The prayer of a broken heart. The prayer of, of a humbled heart. That in your despair and affliction, you realize God's trying to get your attention about something. And you finally give it to him. You finally see the sinfulness of your sin and the idolatry that's dominated your worldview and your practice. And you turn from it and you return the grace and the mercy of God and you find there his forgiveness and his salvation. I think that's what happened with Jonah. And then you get out of that his commitment in verse 9. So out of this contrition 
we see flowing his bold commitment. He says, with a voice of thanksgiving, I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord. I'm going to pay my vows that I have vowed to the Lord. In other words, I'm finally willing to do what you told me to do, right? I mean, isn't that what we think with Jonah? That's what he does. In chapter 3, he gets spit out on the ground and he goes and does what God told him to do. I don't know what that looked like. You know, if that was a, a bartering scene in the belly of the fish, like, Lord, if you get me out of here, I'll go do what you said. That's my vow to you. I will obey. I don't know. I don't think that's what happened because he doesn't say that. But he does promise, I would say in some way, I will do what you want me to do if you allow me the opportunity to do. He is committed out of his broken contrition to do then what God has called of him to do, to sacrifice himself however God wants him to be sacrificed. This is the, the work of God in us which produces our commitment to him. His long-suffering love, his amazing forgiveness, his unending mercy, all of that convinced Jonah that God, the, the Lord Jehovah, is worthy of his full worship and of his sacrificial commitment and service. I think in the belly of that fish, Jonah came face to face with the ugliness of his own sinfulness and of the goodness of his God who had rescued him and given him another breath to deal with his sinfulness and give him another chance, whatever that looked like. And Jonah is here rejoicing and he is here committed to do whatever God would have of him to do. Isn't this exactly what we saw with Mary Magdalene this morning in her urgency? Didn't her urgency flow out of a broken heart, a contrite spirit? Wasn't she, I mean, I don't know, I haven't talked to the lady, but just how she was presented in John 20. Isn't she a woman who strikes you as someone who knew how sinful she had been before Christ. Knew the mercy and grace God had given her through Christ. And out of that realization was committed to serving and loving Christ in every way. I think the same is true for us, beloved. I think this is the powerhouse of our service to the Lord is a constant perusal of our sinfulness and of God's mercy to have a constant awareness of the wickedness of my rebellion and my depravity apart from grace, and to see then the glory of a God who would rescue me from it, save me and salvage me, and then use me. It's astounding. And so we can say, like Paul, I have nothing to boast of in myself. I boast only of Christ and serve sacrificially because of him. So I ask you tonight to evaluate your own heart. Are your, are your prayers marked by these things? Are they marked by honesty before the Lord? Are you seeing it as God sees it? And, and where you find yourself in, in what might be like the belly of the fish? I, I don't know if that's God's discipline. I'm not God. I don't know. But certainly he's trying to get your attention some way. And so are you turning to the Lord like Jonah did? And pleading with him in honest humility. Asking for him to work his will in your life. Are your prayers marked by honesty? Also, are they marked by thankfulness? And I don't mean trite thankfulness. For the food and the day and the house and the car. I mean the, the depth of your soul thankfulness. That oozes out of the pores of your inner man that is astounded that God would love you 
would forgive you and would use you for his glory. Even when you have been as sinful as you have been before, now, and tomorrow, are you filled with thankfulness? And then are your prayers marked by commitment? Lord, I will do what you've asked me to do. Help me to do what you've asked me to do. As you see those things in your own heart, know it's all of grace and rejoice in it. Where you don't see them, may God give you the grace to turn from that lack of thankfulness, lack of brokenness, lack of honest, humble contrition, lack of thankfulness, lack of commitment and return to him. May God help us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us, evidenced so clearly in the sending of your son. We praise you for him. We ask that you would fill us with fresh joy that our Lord died for us, was buried for us, and rose again for us. Help us, Lord, to be urgent in our commitment to you, broken over our own sin, and stable and steady in the forgiveness we know through your Son. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God's grace to you. Dismissed.